Star Trek Monthly Monday 7. These are the new voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilization, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And transfer out, freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, fork-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internets, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, 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 blah. No, blah, blah, blah. Hey, we're back, and uh, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm here with Scott Gardner, and it's our seventh edition of Star Trek Monthly Mondays, and this is a great auspicious Star Trek week this week. Hopefully, it's it's it'll be uh, go down in history as a great week for Star Trek, but there's a lot of Star Trek going on here with us and in general, because when this comes out in a few days, uh, the new Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie for better or worse, is going to come out. And uh, so we're kind of excited about that. And we got Excited just got and all, nervous. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And and we just got a lot of stuff also. This is also going to be like a mega Trek show. We're really feeling the Trek this, this month. and Extra we're gonna, beefy. We're going to talk about the Marvel Star Trek comics. We're going to do the first issue of this, the DC Star Trek comics. Uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, the new movie coming up here. We're going to have an Orcas book club with some Star Trek books. And then to cap it all off, the the cream filling inside the Twinkie will be... Uh, Dagger of the Mind. Yes, a great, just spazzed out Star Trek episode. Um, yes, with the infamous Neural Neutralizer. No, 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 no. Ah, easy, Doctor Van Gelder. So, uh, let's let's get to it, shall we? I yes, hear uh, we there's been a uh, and it's, a, it's old news by now when this comes out. But since uh, we last talked about Star Trek, which was in our uh, special about uh, countdown. the countdown comic, um, there's been a screening in Austin, Texas, where 
they completely this is this is so uh, uh, Roddenberry used to do this stuff too you know um, <coughs> pardon me uh, very melodramatic you know they had a showing of Star Trek crew the Wrath of Khan and, and it was pretty much advertised as uh, we're going to show you Wrath of Khan in 10 minutes from the new Star Wars movie so when they got there, after uh, the credits of Wrath of Khan had rolled, after about ten minutes, the film started burning, and the projector shut down, and everybody was groaning. And they pulled a reverse. They ended up showing ten minutes of the Wrath of Khan, and then showing the entire Star Trek movie, in- introduced by Leonard Nimoy, who came out and apologized for the you know projector errors, and said, hey, would you rather see the new Star Trek? Which, you know... I mean that's just that's nerd heart attack material in there, so it that that bodes that's a good sign and a bad sign to me because it's a good sign because hey it can't be so bad that they're afraid to put it out <laughs> early you know it sort of says hey you know we're maybe proud of this you know let's let's get this to a crowd of people who are here psyched for Wrath of Khan which um. You know, I know you're not of this opinion, but most people hold that as their favorite Star Trek movie. So, you know, um, so we get a bunch of people who are really into original Star Trek and are psyched for Wrath of Khan, and we'll show them this. And, uh, of course, some of the people were reviewers, and and uh, I would say I've probably read about 10 or 12 reviews that have come from uh, people in this audience, all being really good, but with lots of butts, you know, with big butts dotty. It sounds like it's kind of thin on 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 um not as much thin on storyline. There's there, there were a lot of them complaining about, you know, having to explain the backstory with Spock and stuff like that, which haha, we already know cuz yeah, we we're already. the countdown comic. Yeah, that's what I said. And, we were uh, going to have the leg up going in that theater those of us that have read Countdown. Yeah, and it yeah. looks like it does actually give you a little leg up on it and um it seems like it might, you know, the the characterization is there. There seem to be a lot of good things said about um, McCoy. A lot of people seem to like McCoy and Spock. Spock and Kirk. I haven't heard anything really bad about either either of them. And uh, the only one that character that people have seemed to be a little disappointed with or not, not liked was Chekhov. They, it sounds like he has a bad accent or. Or something, and he's also kind of given the check off short shrift of things, and is just sort of gets a couple lines. Well, I hope he gets but, to and, scream because it's not a Star Trek movie if Chekhov doesn't get heard doesn't or scream, scream or something, or stands up for Mother Russia in some way. And I guess Scotty is great. I guess uh, the 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 characterization of Scotty is is really good. Simon Pegg's a good actor, so and he's also a big, huge nerd, so he probably knows his Trek, you know, inside and out. So maybe there's some reverence there. So I'm still pretty psyched about it. For every account has said basically that finally Star Trek has gotten the big... And even one of them, you would have been really proud proud of this guy or happy to hear this. As one guy said, you know, this has finally gotten the big budget special effects and state-of-the-artness that Star Trek hasn't got since the motion picture. Well, that's and, yeah, I uh, like hearing that. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's funny you just said, you know, that, uh, you know, about Simon Pegg, you know, that he's a big nerd and, you know, maybe that, that you know, knows his Star Trek and, you know, that might have served him well and all. And 
I didn't right. want to be a smart ass and say, well, you know, what, you know, maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't. But that's kind of how I feel because here, here's my problem. <laughs> Go ahead, say it. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to get maybe back. Yes, maybe no. Well, I mean, I don't want to get back on my high horse about this, but here, here's my problem. Ah, uh, saddle up, man. They after love to hear reading it. Countdown, I was actually feeling pretty psyched for the first time since this whole thing got announced. For the first time, I actually was like, you know what? Maybe I won't absolutely hate this movie. Maybe I'll actually enjoy it. Maybe it's going to give me what I want out of Star Trek. So I was actually walking away from Countdown. I was pretty psyched and pretty much like, you know what? I, I'm actually now wanting to see this and really wanting to enjoy it. And I still am that way. I don't want to lose that feeling. However, the day after we did that show on Countdown, literally the very next day, I see a trailer on TV and it's the one – you know, it's the typical one that shows the skydiving and the fighting and all that. And in between the clips, you know, they, they do the, the new trailer thing where it has, you know, a couple words will flash up. And then they'll show a scene and a couple more words will flash up. And then they'll show a scene. And this is the one that says, forget everything you know. <clears throat> Doesn't work for me. I've spent, you know, my life life learning star trek you know i love knowing Are the you... minutia and the ins and outs and all the little bullshit that comes with being a star trek fan i'm not about to forget everything i know about star trek just because jj abrams wants to do are you believing are you believing a uh preview here's what I, uh, this is one of the things i learned about about those clips those previews and trailers that you see is 99.9% of the time um, those are not the the creators of the movie have absolutely zero anything to do with it they're made by I hope so they're made by someone at the at the movie studio because they don't want to pay JJ Abrams to cut his own trailer sometimes there's guys who want to cut their own trailer because they're just artists and they you know have to have complete auteur control but that you know what what happens is uh, Paramount will take uh, the footage that they feel comfortable showing and they'll send it to these to people and they'll probably get some hack to write up stuff like forget everything you know and um, you know I mean that's that's a I, I think that's a blatant appeal to the people who are like. I never watched that old Star Trek because it's just stupid. The people who haven't watched right. it and aren't going to give it a chance. You well, know, they're just because it's old, because it's an old cheesy TV show. So they're not. So that's what I think. That's that's line is trying to win over, and it was probably by some PR guy who says we've got to win over. We've got the Star Trek fans are going to go see it. And another thing about the um, reviews is. A lot of the reviewers, and these reviewers, I think, were mostly younger people who may not really know about Star Trek that much. So they may have missed a lot. Of, it's like a lot of the reviews of the, the, the new Star Wars movies where the reviewers were really, a lot of stuff was going over their heads. So they're like, there's nothing to this, but they just don't get, they don't know Star Wars enough, so they don't get the subtext that's going on through it. So... Where the hell was I headed with that? I don't know, but I, I, I tell you, I oh, hope oh, I know that you're right because that's that's what a lot of the reviewers were saying. I tried to take that into consideration, and I I tried to to think that very same thing, 
But then, literally tonight, as I'm eating my dinner, there's another new trailer out, and you know what that one says? No. It says with that smart-ass actor, the new guy playing Kirk said that set me off a couple months back. Oh, great. It They're just says, trying to piss you off. This is not your father's Star Trek. And I was like, Gah! Well, guess what? Your father's going to ground you and not let you go see it, and he's going to go see it instead, so fuck you. <laughs> I was like, oh, ah, it just, they're you know. Try, they're, they're trying to, because they're trying to be like, hey, look, it's safe. You know, it's not an old, it, whatever. It's pointless. It's you know, not it's the pointless. old geeky, stupid Star Trek. Right. Well, I'm sorry. Right. That's the one I want. Thank you very much. Uh, I think, I think um, there's going to be, I well, a lot of the reviews that I read basically said, we're kind of complaining that. This sort of really pays too much attention to to the fans, you know, the fans of Star Trek. It really gives too many concessions to the fans, which is a good sign for me that, that people are going, you know. So maybe that means that it's they thought it was working too hard to fit it into the actual continuity. It sounded to me like it was kind of, they were kind of griping that it wasn't a complete reboot, which is a good sign for, you know, from yours and my perspective too is if that's what that means but i don't know you know the proof will be in the pudding and i'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to go see this movie you know as soon asap i probably won't fight the lines on opening night but you know what i i just might because i'm really i'm really excited to see it even if 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 at the Bottom line, the special effects and the the set pieces are awesome in it. I'll probably feel like my money was well spent because it's Star Trek. And getting something new, Star Trek, is a treat anyway. Even if it's, uh, unless it's like just a horrible, like, you know, taking a dump on it. But, um, I have so, a... so it's better than normal movies. But I mean, even if it's just basically visually beautiful, I'll be satisfied, but I won't be, you know, I'll, after a couple of weeks, I'll be like, eh, I won't care, you know, anymore. And I want it to be, I want it to set me up and go, you know, I really want to see where this is going. And I, and if, if it does that, I'll be really pumped and I'll be kind of surprised too. I have a bigger problem, which is, I think... Scotty, my oldest son, I think he wants to go with me to this because he's starting sure. to express an interest in Star Trek. You know, he's seen several of the movies. You know, he's seen quite a little bit of uh, of mostly the later series, you know, like uh, Next Gen and Voyager and that. Right. Seen, you know, as I've been re-watching the original series for our Star Trek Monthly Monday episodes, nine times out of ten, he'll watch them with me when I watch those. So he's he's aware of it. He has a has an interest, not as much as like Star Wars and stuff, but he does start to, you know, he's started to express an interest. I think he wants to go with me to see this. My dilemma is you know, do I take him? Because I have this nasty fear that if it's not what I want it to be, if it turns out that it just it, You'll lose him to the dark exactly, side. Seduced. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> He'll love the new one, and it will drive me just apeshit crazy because it will be everything I 
feared it was going to be, and he'll love it, you know? And I don't need, you know, he just turned 13. He's now officially a teenager. I don't need any more wedges between us at this point, you know? I already feel that generational gap thing going on, and the last thing I need is for him, him to away. fully embrace... You can't New keep Coke him away and, forever. And I'm strictly you, a, an old Coke guy. You know what I'm saying? And you I don't can't turn you can't turn to the new Star Trek till you're eighteen, son. <laughs> Sorry. When you get your own place If you want get a job new Star Trek, not, you get the hell out of my house. <laughs> not under my goddamn roof, let me tell you there, sonny boy. Not until you can kick your old man's ass. Which I wouldn't say anything like that if I were you. Well what? But Oh he'll be able to kick your nah, ass. Nah, fuck that shit, man. Whatever. No. Better get on that. Better get on that stairmaster. Start start jogging in place and get on your treadmill. <laughs> <coughs> Three miles a day, baby. Just miles don't let him listen. <laughs> Better take it up to four. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping it's I good. Too. It'll I... be good. I mean, I hear. Here's another thing that I heard. I heard the soundtrack is great. I hear there's a new theme that this guy wrote. The the guy who wrote the music has a new sort of theme, but I don't think it happens till the end credits. And I think the opening theme is an orchestral of the original Alexander Courage. And everybody said it was spectacular. Like this spectacular, majestic, orchestrated Alexander Courage version. So... I like that. I've been like snooping around, like looking to see if like the soundtrack's been released yet, but I don't think it has yet. But I'd like to hear that. That sounds cool. So who knows? It's been a long time getting from there to here. That's what they're gonna play, you know. It's gonna. It's gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Ate that shit. Oh, that's... oh, grind, grind, grind my teeth. <laughs> hey, I watched a good one today. On, I'm, I'm, I've started watching uh, Enterprise again because I'm, I'm gonna get through that series one of these days. I, I watched a good one today. Uh, I can't remember what it what what the hell happened. If I'm gonna to watch that, that series, somebody's good. gonna have to take all the episodes and clip out that music to it. <laughs> Well, on the DVD, if you hit the forward button, it skips over just ah. that much. It starts right at like the 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 title card, you know, starting the episode. So you can actually skip. Is over. Is there any way to erase it right off your DVD? Because <laughs> goddamn, that sucks ass. Oh, it's actually grown on me. I actually like it. Believe it or not, oh, I actually well, do like then it. get a gun and shoot yourself <laughs> now, man. Because why are you even bothering to live? You're as pathetic as, like, Gollum now. Uh, mm, fucking. Uh. I've been watching Firefly, and the the theme to Firefly is si simple, and I theorize that maybe Enterprise was trying to sort of bite off um, Firefly, but it turns out I've been corrected. I think it was Biblio Mike corrected me, and um, Enterprise came out first. So there, there goes that theory. <laughs> but the, it has the same sort of, and I always fast forward. And that one, the, at least the one for Firefly is catchy. Well, not actually, it's worse because it's sort of a, it fits at least in the context of that show. So it's not like horrifying, but it's just not my type of music. But it sticks in your head. I can hear it in my head right now. It's a very, um, you know, it's got a good hook to it. 
but I have a theory that that Biblio Mike is much too nice a guy to come right out and tell us that we're completely full of shit, but that he takes great pleasure in in like doing it in a nice way, pointing out when we screw up and don't have our facts straight and don't do our proper research and stuff. Oh, well, that's, you know, I mean, I think we, um, not that he's listened to us in any kind of order, but I think right out the bat, we pretty much said, we're not going to sit here. I mean, it's one thing, like, to research a show ahead of time, which we're starting to do a little bit, or prepare for shows, but it's another thing, you know, to sit there, and I hear a lot of people do it with the, you know, with Wikipedia in front of them, or IMDB right in front of them, and you know, pulling it up and reading it off there and get, you know, getting all, dotting all the I's and crossing the T's. But I don't think that's really our goal. So, no. you know, and it's always me that gets caught because I'm always the one, you know, thinking that it's Christian Bale and Memento. Or... I think it's more fun to do it off the top of your head because, you know what, no matter how intensely you research, you can read every book and every Wikipedia entry and everything else. When you're talking about something like Star Trek or Star Wars, there is always going to be somebody that knows more about it than you do. I don't care who you are. And so, you know, rather than trying to sound like I'm the ultimate Star Trek Well, you authority, see, I know I'm not I'm even I'm just going to tell you what I that. know off the top of my head and leave it to other people to fill in the gaps or correct the mistakes. You know, and, and if, that, if that translates to some kind of laziness, then, you know, then so be it. But I'm not trying to be lazy. I'm just not trying to... You know, I know better than to, to than to ever announce myself as some sort of ultimate authority on Star Trek because I know I'm not. You know, I, and I'm also quite aware that like three quarters of the time I am speaking directly out of my ass. So, <laughs> you know, I I, I I don't mind it. You know, by all means, point it out. But you know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, what do we uh, we got? Anything else about the new movie? Uh. That's about it. I, I, I literally, I downloaded, I went to, um, I think it was iTunes or it was some iSite where, you know, that you can go and look at all the previews and download them. And I downloaded like the highest quality one because I wanted a picture for, for from the preview to match up with the comic book from Countdown. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, but that, that spurred me on a frame by frame look through that whole preview. And... It and and it was a nice high definition, beautiful looking. Be I mean the special effects are really state. You know they're going to be Star Wars level space fights and stuff like that, or the detail you know and the of things going on. I mean I was frame by framing it and literally just you know looking deeper and deeper into all the pictures of the action type stuff. And it's going to at least be visually really nice, at least from the preview anyway. But Speaking of uh, hunting for images and stuff like that, months ago, a long, long, long time ago, somewhere or other, somebody linked me to an image that I thought was fan-created. And now, in retrospect, I think it actually was like the one of the first possibly leaked photos from this movie – but it was an it was a shot of the Enterprise of the new Enterprise in orbit above uh -huh. a planet, and it was a really spectacular picture. But I just didn't really think it was from the new movie. I thought it was some fan created thing, 
Well, I don't know what I did with it. I don't know if I've deleted it or it's just off on some disk I can't find or what. But if if anybody knows the image I'm talking about and will please send me a link on that, I'd like to have that image back as a as a desktop wallpaper again. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, but it was a, it was a really fantastic piece of art, and uh, you know I, I like the the look of the new ship because it's a nice blend. Yeah. To me, it's a nice blend of of basically. The original ship from the original series, but also I see a lot of the Star Trek, mo- the motion picture Enterprise in there too. You know, with with a lot of yes. glowy bits and all that. So I really like that. You know, so I, I I do. I'm I'm digging the new ship. I think it's pretty cool. So yeah, if anybody has a has a link to that image, I sure would appreciate it. Well, I think we're going a little long for this segment, so we need to speed along because we have a all right. beefy Star Trek episode ahead of us. Oh, yeah. So what else are we uh, What else we got here? Yeah, what else were we going to talk about in the beginning here? We got a... Well, let's see. We got a bunch of comics on hand. Do we want to talk about uh, briefly about Star Trek Crew by IDW? Yes, that was it. That was it. Um, How could I forget? It was awesome. Now, I don't have... I'm glad you you sent me in that direction. Oh, I'm glad you liked it, but... It's funny, you know, you'd posted some stuff about the form. I guess you're not the only one, though. I was going to bust on you th- for this, but maybe maybe Uh-oh. it's the fault of the series or or something, but evidently you're not the only person who did oh, not yeah. realize that the main character that we follow in this series is actually the character that was simply called number one in, you know uh, what? in the case. I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to like throw somebody right under the drag somebody right under the bus with me and say it was our uh our so far only um star trek well well, he was our first um guest on a star trek monthly monday and that's chris gallo oh that's that's right he, he didn't know who she was either and and come on that guy knows his star trek oh yeah I mean, because we did that show with him, and we were also talking about it before and after the show. That guy knows his, that guy knows his Star Trek stuff. Yeah, we need to have Chris and, back on. And he on didn't really, too. he didn't really pick up on the number one thing either. And once you said that, I was like, oh, of course. But I didn't pick up on it at once because I wasn't even. Well, to tell you the truth, I wasn't really thinking about it being a character that I knew. I figured it was going to be somebody. I was just came in with the assumption of, here's a character John Burns created. For himself, that's sort of a composite character that he has, you know, that he wants to fit in here. So, and and I was really digging the character. Actually, I was digging everything about it. But I think, you know, I, now I can see that. Even though I, I, so part of the thing was I think it was spoiled in the solicits somewhere that this was number one story, and I, I'm curious. I wonder if I didn't know going into this that this was number one story. I wonder if I would realize it or not, because I, I think the thing that would have gave it away to me one way or the other, though, was it's in one of these two. We're reviewing the first two issues, by the way, because the third one, as we record this, the third one has not yet come out. It probably will be out by the time you're hearing this episode. But there was a moment in. Yeah, it was at the end of the first issue where she's uh, about to receive a commendation and she turns it down where the uh, the admiral, I believe it's an admiral, anyway, whoever it is that's going to give her the commendation says, um, everyone here will remember your name, Lieutenant, uh, Cadet, because she's a cadet at this point. And when he said that, I realized, 
you have never heard this character's name through the entire series, you know, or through this entire first book. But as we're in two issues into this, we still have not heard her name. I'm thinking that John Byrne is going to be able to pull this whole thing off. I'm wondering if he's going to be able to pull it off to where we'll go through this whole series and and never hear her name because who's ever heard her name besides number one? Yeah, exactly. And you know, unless I, that's her name, I, I used to think that was her name, and I remember maybe this was just in that that like post series fiction, you know, like in one of the books or comics or something. But I remember there being like an alternate bio for her, where number one wasn't, you know, like like. Picard calls Riker number one because he's his first officer, so he's the number one, you know, person to take over the ship, you know, or whatever. So there was a lot of speculation that that Pike called her number one because she was the first officer. So it, you know, it's one of those old nautical That's what jokes, I always whatever. Assumed. That's what I assumed too. But then I remember reading somewhere some fake bio for her, some something, maybe it was in the fan fiction or in the books or novels or comics or something, that she was actually called that because she's basically, at the, at the time the cage was done, you know, the the whole Vulcan thing for Mr. Spock wasn't all fleshed out yet, you know, right, there wasn't, it was a sketchy yeah, right. you know, there wasn't any of that backstory that we later got on Spock so a lot of the ideas that would be eventually turn into the Spock character were actually supposed to be character traits of the number one character. She was supposed to be the one that was all logical, you know, and unemotional and, you know, had a logical mind and all that. So I guess the speculation was that number one might actually be her name because she came from a society that was ordered and logical and they were all numbers instead of names or, you know, something like that. But Then wouldn't that made her, make her like God or something? <laughs> or would that be like number zero or something? I, I don't know, but... Maybe she's always pissed off all the time. <laughs> or maybe her name, like, was, her is like Urinella or something and they, like, as a nickname, they just said, let's call you number one. It's a lot better at state dinners and stuff like that than what? Urinella. I like the Who idea knows? better that that she was actually you know that that Pike was referring to her the same way that that Picard referred to yes. to uh, Riker. I just like that idea better. However, that you know that leaves us back with the problem of she never got a name. So I'm wondering, you know, is he going to be able to pull this whole thing off with her being the the lead character and and who we're following through the whole thing? Yet we're at the end of it, we're going to be left with still never knowing. This this person, as far as we don't even know what her name is, but maybe he'll even do a scene where somebody's about to say her name, and then like something blows up, and they're distracted. You know, that that could happen too. You know, the oh, he's the been block. very clever about. It. I mean, up until that point in the first, well, the, the thing very it, last page of the first issue, where the guy says about you know everybody's going to know your name, it hadn't even occurred to me that. That no one, you know, because everybody always says something like, oh, it's you, or hey, how you doing? Yeah. But they don't ever say her name, and it never occurred to me. But he was, you know, that, I think that's very clever. He, he, you know, this stuff can be really stupid mm -hmm. if you do it wrong. If you're clumsy about it, writing stuff like John Byrne is, and I'm always... And I'm always a little bit, you know, wary of of Star Trek stuff that isn't like a movie or a TV show because it's you know somebody. A lot of times people don't really understand it or they have their they want to do their own take or something. But John Byrne really understands it, 
And he also understands that you don't want it to be just this ridiculous trotting out of old characters and references and stuff. He really makes it work organically. So, you know, I mean, he's not thrusting... When when you see a minor character who's appeared in Star Trek in here appear, it's not really like a big trumpeted thing. They just sort of... They'll have a walk-on or they'll have a role in it in some way or another. And uh, it was kind of a, a little witty and weird. The, the um, one guy that the, uh, he was... At, was he an admiral? I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, he resembled... Gene Roddenberry, and they, you know, at one point, one of the characters referred to him as the Great Bird of the Galaxy, right? Which is sort of pounding home the Gene Roddenberry thing because that's what he was called. But um, he also he ends up he also at some point sort of admits to being like not the greatest, you know, Starfleet officer ever, you know, and not always have acting in the best way and you know, wanting to get it, he sacrifices himself trying to redeem himself, and uh, number one is really um, affected by that, and so she basically makes sure the history books see it as, you know, that it, as, as you know, something that makes him look good, and I thought that was a really neat, mm-hmm. neat touch to it, and it's sort of, you know, Gene, Gene Roddenberry's a, um, He's he's a character etched in shades of gray, you know. Every lots of there's a lot of opinions about him, good and bad, and uh, you know he was crazy. You know, the, you know he sounds like a very scandalous type of person, and uh, I think that that sort of is reflected a little in the character in here. You know, he's he's um, portrayed as being sort of warts and all, which I think is cool. Right. But uh. Yeah, I think yeah, you know, maybe I'm maybe I was giving away too much plot cuz this you can still go out and get this. You could go get this at your comic shop and you should. It's yeah. the art is very nice too. The art's John Byrne deliciousness. Yeah. Which I haven't seen a new John Byrne comic in probably approaching 25 years or something like that since I've been in high school. Well, you know me. I mean, Byrne was always my favorite growing up. And, you know, at one time, anything he'd ever done, whether it was just, you know, an ink on one page of some book or something like that, I I collected it because I was a nut for John Byrne. But at some point, post his Man of Steel stuff, he just kind of jumped the shark for me. And, And while I continued to collect a lot of his stuff, I did, I no longer got everything just because he was doing it because he he honestly he just did a lot of stuff I thought was crap and I wasn't con- you know, I, I wasn't interested in like he did uh, a a demon book that I could care less about he did a, a Doom Patrol book that I I understand was just awful and some different things so I tried not to be a hater and, and a detractor but a couple of times I, I felt myself. You know, also falling into that that thing, you know, of of saying, well, you know, John Byrne's lost it, and he's just not the same old John Byrne, and blah blah blah. This is the John Byrne of old. This feels very much like '80s top of his game, John Byrne. I mean, and and what's great about this is it's not just the art. I mean, he wrote this, and this is top notch Byrne. I mean, this yes. is like. Fantastic Four era birth. Yes. I mean, he he's bringing his A game on both the story and the oh, yeah. art, and it's great. It's gonna it's gonna hold up to repeated readings and 
you're going to discover new things. Mm-hmm. It's just very well thought out and plotted out. And um, he knows and, his and, track, you know, definitely. You can tell that with reading this is he knows classic Trek. And he knows how it feels and he knows how it, how the stories evolve. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm really psyched to, to read some more and to read some of the ones he's done before too. Cause you were talking about the, uh, last month you were talking about the, um, what was it? The hollow, um, the hollow crown, the hollow yeah. crown. And, uh, yeah. that sounded really good too. That was very good. That was very good because that was, that was Kirk era and very, very much solidly entrenched in that era. You know, it touched on Kirk and the enterprise and, and, you know, those events, a number of times it gave kind of a backstory to how basically you could work your way around the whole Arganian thing, which never really got touched on again, you know? Right. I mean, you know, here that was, you know, I think a lot of people forget that was the first appearance of the Klingons was that episode with the Organians. And right there in that very first episode with the Klingons, they, they get saddled with this, you know, you know, these, these higher beings basically call it a, a truce between the two factions. Yet later on, you know, we clearly see that, you know, they went to war and, you know, there was there was more hostilities and all that. But we never really got the backstory of what the hell happened. Why didn't the Organians step in and spank them later on when, you know, when tensions escalated and all that. So, you know, that that hollow crown story actually lends a little bit to that, uh, to you know, to what happened and how they were able to kind of get around some things. So I like that a lot. But yeah, this this stuff from IDW, particularly the burn stuff, man, I, I can't I can't recommend it highly enough because I think it's fantastic stuff. Definitely. I can't wait for more. I'm gonna can't wait to yeah, I can't wait. I love it. I love it when stuff like this happens that I've counted out and reading this is I reading this comic was sort of a little time warp too because I mean maybe it was because the way John Burns art was but um and but it had a lot to do with the coloring and the paper of the book and and the layout of the pages, it's very 80s. It's very, mm-hmm. it's it, it reads like something of when I would say was the peak of my comic reading, you know, when I was like a kid and I had time to really devote time to reading comics and getting into them and anticipating them coming out. And, you know, when I first started getting into them, it, it, it reads like something like that. And it's neat when something new comes out like that. It's almost like discovering something from the past that you never knew existed or something. Right. And we would, and if it did exist, we would have tracked it down and read it a hundred times by now. So it's just awesome. And the fact that it's good is just even more icing on the cake. It's yeah, you can't, you can't beat it when, when somebody, you, uh, it sounds like, you know, I know I had, but it sounds like you pretty much had sort of counted burn out, you know, and just sort of written him off. And uh, to a to a certain degree, I mean, I right. I don't, you know, every once in it a while, it wasn't like he, a bitter like John. Bur- I have no John Byrne. I don't. Right. Know, he does <laughs> right. He's dead to me. <laughs> dead to me. <laughs> a shroud, Mister Byrne. A shroud. Yeah. I I kissed him on both cheeks and he yes. ran away and I screamed after him. You're still my brother. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, with that, I think we need to take a break. I I, I smell the smell of the briny deep. Ah. We got orcas. I I see that large blubberous mast off the mizzen mast off the aft. I <laughs> what? <laughs> Look at her there. Sometimes she looks humongous. Sometimes she's a bit smaller. But I will spear her with my harpoon. I wouldn't spear her with your harpoon. <laughs> Sorry, I was eating a Twinkie. Hi, friends. It's me, Orca Stay Free. And this is the Orca Book Club. Welcome back to Orca's Book Club. This time around, we are talking about Star Trek Ex Machina by Christopher L. Bennett. Now, I picked this book up off the shelf strictly for the cover, laughing all the while in the face of the old adage of how not to judge a book. And you know what? It turned out I was somewhat justified in this, but you know, but only somewhat. The cover of this book, you know, it features a Star Trek the Motion Picture era Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Enterprise on the cover. You know, done all this, you know, silvery look to it. And it's really, you know, it's really cool. It just caught my eye because the Star Trek the Motion Picture era is my favorite personal era for, of Star Trek, you know, for reasons that, you know, I hope to get into uh, soon, you know, on a show where we'll actually review that movie specifically. So I'm going to save that for another another time. But suffice it to say, it's an era where I think there there was a lot of untapped potential. You know, anyway, this story picks up pretty much right after the end of Star Trek The Motion Picture with Kirk settling somewhat uneasily into his new old command as the captain of the Enterprise. You know, he spent several years away at Starfleet Academy, so he's feeling a little rusty, a little out of touch, and there's a lot of new members of this crew that didn't serve under him during the five-year voyage, so they're not familiar with Kirk. You know, and there's one character in particular that's actually pretty resentful of Kirk that... You know, that Decker spent so much time and was so devoted to the Enterprise and the refit and everything, and then basically just got bumped aside by Kirk. And uh, so that's explored in this book and and made a very interesting subplot. Spock um, is also, you know, he's having some difficulties adjusting here because he's dealing with the ramifications of his little epiphany about, you know, the emptiness and sterility and everything of pure logic following that mind meld that he had with V'ger in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So Spock struggles to find a balance between the life he was living as a Vulcan and this new life, you know, of trying to acknowledge and embrace and, and everything, the emotions that are part of his half-human heritage. And that, that was very interesting to me as well. In the meantime, uh, a new mission comes up for Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise, and they have to go to this planet, um, Darren Four, to offer assistance to help quell this, you know, this civil unrest and all this stuff that's going on, and basically to provide a Starfleet presence. 
Now, Darren Four has been settled by the Fabrini, and these are the people who were previously living on the world ship Yonata in the original uh, series episode for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. You know, that was the one where, you know, they, they were basically living in a ship, but they the didn't know it was spaceship. a ship. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great, great episode. I like that one a lot. So it seems that having Kirk destroy your computer god and then split, you know, maybe doesn't always have the best effect on the populace of, you know, a planet or whatever. And the people are divided and, you know, radical rebel factions have begun a terrorist movement, basically. You know, they're intent on restoring the Oracle as the overseer of the people. So for that reason, I liked this book, you know, but I would caution that if, if you're not a fan of Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, especially if you're not a fan of, uh, of further world is hollow and I have touched the sky, then you might not get a lot of, a lot out of this book because it really relies heavily on both those stories. It relies on you knowing those stories and a lot of the minutiae to both those stories, but also it relies on you just plain liking those episodes. It's really talky in parts. And, you know, much like Star Trek The Motion Picture, it's not a thrill a minute action adventure story. But I like the story because we finally see a story that deals with the ramifications of Kirk destroying a society's god figure. You know, because he did this in a lot of episodes. He you know, loves Kirk, doing that. He loves, yeah. He, you know, he doesn't he like go, machines. He takes out <laughs> machines that have to do with society. He loves to just say, oh, you got a computer running this? Blow it up. All right, we're off. What the? Yep. And that's what he would do. And that's what he did in this one. He blew up their computer god and then just, well, that was the end of the episode. Well, I like this and it was interesting to me because this showed Rem. This showed that it's not so easy to just come in, kill somebody's god, and take off, and they're going to be okay. Because these people weren't okay. They had lived for thousands of years with the Oracle being the voice of God for them. You know, And so that, that was one of the things I really liked about this. And I, I thought it was handled very maturely, well, and it was, really, it was very thought-provoking. You know, it was well, a very interesting concept. Well, you've got the the prime directive that 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 maybe says you know you can't interfere with them. But what the hell, Kirk's already you know I guess Kirk doesn't care about the prime directive when it comes to a computer. You know when it comes to to a machine I, I, running society. But once you've destroyed their computer, you'd think you'd want to look you know look in on them every. That's it's the same question right. Khan, Khan asked of them. It's like you you weren't gonna you know, check in to see if we were okay after a while, you know, and make sure you just wrote it off as happily ever after, you know, and I think Kirk gets around the, uh, the prime directive issue with these kind of things, because I think he makes the argument that they're already being affected or possibly, uh, retarded in their growth because they're they're being, I don't know. I hate to say duped, but they're basically being duped by a, a, a false god by right. a computer. And, and it's usually something Kirk has determined after about fifteen minutes being on the planet. You know, 
and has <laughs> and has made that his expert decision based on that. And after punching out a few people and then telling them he doesn't want to hurt them, and you know, and then blowing up their computer, and at least he gives them a little pep talk always about <laughs> thinking for yourself. I tell you though, what really sold me on this book, you know, was, was you know, right from the very heartfelt introduction, you know, by the by the book's author. You know, this guy, his his deep love and respect and knowledge of the Star Trek, the motion picture era enterprise. I mean, it's it's readily apparent right away from the get go. And and he really stresses that you know that's his favorite movie. It got him into Star Trek, and this was like his dream project was was basically to 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 flesh that out a little bit more. So you know he knows this era really well, and he really captures everything that I lo- love about it. You know the characters, and most especially the settings and the technology of that era. They're all dead on. You know, from the use of like the proper uniforms to you know a lot of the lingo and equipment that they used only for this movie, and then a lot of that stuff was basically abandoned after Star Trek: The Motion Picture. You know, all the advanced, you know, NASA, you know, NASA, NASA-esque lingo and stuff like that. You know, a lot of that stuff was dropped after the first movie. Well, he he picks those pieces up and and uses them to to pretty good effect in this. You know, also the the technological capabilities of this new and improved enterprise that we had in the first movie. You know, he nails all that. You know, he nails the the wonder and the spectacle and the majesty and all that 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 was such a a, a part of the only big budget big budget Star Trek movie we ever got up to this point. You know, and that that really made the book for me because he he brought back that sense of you know the Enterprise wasn't this claustrophobic. Uh, submarine in space. It was actually more like a, a like a beautiful futuristic city in space, and that was the feel I got from Star Trek: The Motion Pictures. The Enterprise was massive. You know, it was like uh, uh, it was like a mall on the inside, and that that's kind of the feel of this book too. Now, I wish more of the Trek books felt this way, especially of this era. You know, they they really with with Star Trek two, I think in particular, they really went back to like that that submarine in space feel, and I, I don't like that as much. That works for something like Enterprise, where they're on a tiny little ship. But the the well, Enterprise just remember, movie Star was Trek supposed 2, to be huge. Star Trek two had a sort of submarine scene in it where they were flying blind through the right. nebula. Right. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I I like the the big spacious. Space City Enterprise. I, I, that just, I don't know, it just appeals to me more. It seems more interesting to me because how cool would it be to be able to wander those halls and, and see, you know, these giant open spaces and all that. And we never got that again. After the first movie, there's never ever a, another scene on the Enterprise where you, you get this great big huge wide open space, you know, inside the ship. I mean, you know, like the like the wreck deck or the, you know, where they all assemble, you know, the whole crew is able to assemble. It's so huge inside, you know, these great big wide open things. I like that idea that, that, you know, it's so big that it doesn't all have to be claustrophobic and all tight. And, and you know, because it seems like if you're going to live in space for, you know, five years or more on this ship, there would have to be at least some places you could go and, and, and feel like, you know, that maybe you were outside or at least in a large open area so that you wouldn't just bug out, you know? 
But uh, but anyway, you know, he does Space that with his book. Madness man. <laughs> you know, it's not. You know, he's not slavish to it or anything like that. It doesn't drag down the story or anything. But it just, you know, it just it, it felt you know really entrenched in the era that it was supposed to be taking place, and I liked that. You know, a lot of the books written to be set during the original five-year mission, for example, you know, they don't really come off feeling like they're really something that you might have seen on TV in, in the 60s as part of the show. You know, a, a lot of times they just, they're not able to to take that step back, you know, but, but this one did. For the most part, it felt like it really could have been written or, or could have been filmed or whatever in, like, you know, 1980 or whatever, like a year or two after, you know, that first, uh, that first movie come out. But, you know, on the, on the flip side though, there were a lot of in jokes and some references to continuity that would come later. You know, there, there is, uh, a, a, at least one, I can remember, uh, a, a reference to, um, enterprise, you know, the show enterprise and captain Archer. And it was, it was weird because it was simultaneously it was cool, but it was also a little bit like, nah, I don't know if I want that. You know, I wouldn't want to see it in all my Star Trek books. You know, the the like the shoehorning in of things retroactively because that, that I don't know, it kind of bugs me a little bit. But you know, this one was done well. It was basically the the part I can remember was they they provided an explanation for if you remember on the wreck deck scene with with Decker and Ilea. You know, Decker points Ilea, you know, the Ilea probe, to the this display on the wall of all these previously, you know, these these prior ships called Enterprise, and one of them's like an old schooner, and then there's like the space shuttle Enterprise and all that, and then there's like one right before the movie, or I mean, the uh, television era Enterprise, one that we we never do see. Well, it's explained in this book that. For some reason, the picture was wrong or they didn't have a a, a good picture or something to that effect. But it's been changed in this book to where it's Archer's Enterprise in that slot. And I don't know how I feel about that, you know? That's that's that retroactive continuity that I'm not so crazy about. But I don't know. It's kind of cool and kind of goofy at the same time. But um, the, the biggest con is that the book drags a lot in the middle. It gets really talky. There's a lot of politics and stuff like that because it is more than anything. It's a political story about, you know, the ramifications of, you know, now that these people have gotten to the promised land, you know, what happens now and a lot of people don't want to go along with a plan and all that. So it gets a little dragged down in parts, but you know, you know, sometimes the motivations of the characters and the setups of the situations and stuff like that, they're a tad over-explained. So it, it makes the book drag a little bit. But other than that, you know, if you like this era, if you're intrigued by the premise, you know, if you, especially if you liked um, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, you know, I would really recommend this book because it is a nice follow-up, you know, if any of that stuff interests you. And the idea of seeing Kirk having to finally to deal with you know the consequences consequences of his actions you know when he does stuff like this that was the best part you know because he he basically he has to deal with this that the fact that people are dying you know over a decision that he made kind of off the cuff and and that was the biggest thing i took away from it you know for that reason alone 
you know, if, if nothing else, I really enjoyed it and, uh, I recommend it. You know, this, this, again, this is one of those ones I try to pick this up on the cheap, you know, don't, don't run out and pay, you know, the ridiculous new book price, you know, of, of eight, nine bucks for it. But, you know, if you can pick it up somewhere used for, you know, say under five bucks or what, then, you know, it's worth your time. It's, it, it was a pretty good read. So that's it for, uh, this edition of Orca's book club. And uh, we'll take a little break and come right back. We're going to talk some Star Trek comics. This has been the Orca Book Club. Hey, we're back and it's time for more Star Trek comics. And uh, we're going to do some Marvel... Star Trek comics and some DC Star Trek comics, and and we're we're, we're doing the DC comics in depth. So we're just doing the first issue of Star Trek from DC, and uh, to start it off, Scott's going to do the first six issues of the Marvel comics, and he's yep. going to do it right now. Now, now this is Marvel Comics' first attempt at Star uh, Star Trek. This was back in. Uh, well, the first issue is uh, cover dated of uh, April 1980. Now, now, Marvel would eventually get the Star Trek license back again, but that was years and years later. This is the post-Star um, Trek The Motion Picture series. That's the one I'm talking about. Ran 18 issues. I'm going to do this in three six-issue blocks because basically, I, I hate to say it, but I'm going to come right out and say it. These just aren't worth doing the super in-depth issue-by-issue breakdown. Um, and you, you'll understand why as I go through it. Chris said something earlier about, um, you know, Star Trek can suffer, you know, especially the comics can suffer when you get basically the the author's own take on Star Trek rather than something that is, you know, really devoted to feeling like Star Trek. Trek are really entrenched in the continuity or whatever. That's an excellent way to describe the Marvel Comics series because unfortunately it started fairly strong but very quickly went to where it went. So anyway, this is a, a quick and dirty rundown of the first six issues of the Marvel Comics Star Trek series. Um, issues one through three of uh, the Star Marvel Star Trek Basically, all they were was a reprint of Marvel Comics Super Special number 15, which, you know, it featured a beautiful painted cover by Bob Lark, which I'm told is actually an homage to James Bama's original NBC promo artwork, um, I assume for the t TV series. Um, now, this adapted uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, the movie, with uh, Marv Wolfman, you know, famous, famous comics writer. You know, he handled the scripting for this. Dave Cockrum, you know, who we talked about in our last Star Wars Monthly Monday, you know, he did some Star Wars uh, work for Marvel Comics. You know, here he's handling the art chores for the Star Trek uh, film adaption with Klaus Janssen doing the inks. Uh, this was, by the way, also reprinted as one of those Marvel Comics pocketbooks. It had the same cover on it as the uh, Marvel Comics Super Special 15. For the monthly series, you know, when they broke this down to be the first three issues, Steve Lealoha provided kind of a strange cover for the for the first issue with Cockerman Jansen. Uh, they did the the cover to issue number two, and then finally there was a really beautiful 
head-on shot of the new Enterprise coming at you with the phasers blasting and stuff. That was done by uh, Bob uh, Wycheck. The adaption, you know, it's it's done pretty much in the, the the Marvel standard of the time for movie adaptions. You know, very similar to what they did for like Logan's Run, Star Wars, and Battlestar Galactica. What's really interesting, and what makes these issues worth checking out, is of course, you know, the art is beautiful all the way through. You know, they 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 kept the same team and they really work well and complement each other. But most especially the dialogue and the scripting, you know, which was taken from the actual shooting script of the film prior to anyone at Marvel seeing the finished product, you know, the finished film. So a lot like Star Wars before it, Marvel's Star Trek The Motion Picture Adaption has a lot of alternate and expanded scenes and some different dialogue than what actually wound up in the movie. I I always enjoy those kind of things because I I feel like you're getting a a little peek behind the scenes or, you know, you're getting a, a chance to look at, you know, the, the snippets that are on the cutting room floor. And I really enjoy that. You know, I, I, I miss that, you know, we don't really get that sort of thing anymore. You know, they always wind up as like DVD extras or something like that. You know, but back in the day, you know, your DVD extras were reading the novelization or reading the, the comic adaption or something like that. You know, so like the scene between uh, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock in the officer's lounge, you know, shortly after Spock has come aboard, you know, it, it's almost completely different in in this. You know, based on the the shooting script, you know, the dialogue is is almost completely changed, and I think it actually comes off a lot more interesting in this, especially McCoy, who really gets onto Spock, you know, for having tried to basically expunge his human half through the you know taking the Colinar ritual. I, I like that; it, it reads really well in here. You know, McCoy's pretty indignant about the whole thing. But you know, all told, it, it was an excellent adaption. You know, one of, one of Marvel's best, really. You know, it's only just the three issues, whereas like uh, Logan's Run and Star Wars were six issues. But I think that really helps this story because a lot of people complain that you know so much of Star Trek the motion picture is just you know Sulu looking out the windshield at clouds with his mouth open. You know, that cuts well, all can, that crap out. Right, and, and when it is, it's just one frame. So it's one, yeah. you know, panel. So, Yep, exactly. So it really cuts down. You know, it, it, it's a shame, though, that Marvel wasn't able to sustain the high quality of this adaption through the whole series. And, and you'll see what I mean, because pretty quickly – it's it's like those charts you see of businesses, you know, where where they you know it shows their profit margin and you know it goes up to like Mount Everest and then all of a sudden it just drops off like that game on The Price Is Right, you know, the the yodeler guy. Because that's kind of yeah, exactly. That's kind of the 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 how, what happens to the quality of of this series. So. Issues four and five, you know, that was a two-parter with covers and art again by Cockrum and uh, and Klaus Jansen. You know, same superior art, but the story in this, you know, seriously stumbles. You know, probably because the first part of this was written by Marv Wolfman, you know, excellent writer and all, and the follow-up, the the next issue was done by Mike W. Barr. You know, that's not that Barr is like a bad writer by any means; he's a great comic book writer. But the plot of these two issues revolves around, um, you know, that that kind of – it's a tried-and-true Star Trek convention, but it's also it can be a little weird and a little silly if it doesn't come off just right of, you know, basically having the Enterprise, you know, it's zipping along through space and all it come, all of a sudden it comes along, you know, come, comes across a site that just shouldn't exist. You know, something like 
Apollo's big green hand or, you know, Abe Lincoln in space or, you know, something like that. In this case, the Enterprise comes along or, or comes across, you know, an honest to goodness, right out of the Magic Kingdom, haunted mansion floating in space on this little rock island you know it's complete uh, with ghosts and ghouls and the whole nine yards so yeah exactly you know so Captain what starts Kirk. out is Captain <laughs> Kirk. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a flashback type of thing to to that you know to uh cat's paw yeah but it starts out you know it's a it's a fairly entertaining and, and intriguing premise you know i always like these kind of things you know like like space abe lincoln and so i'm a sucker for that it, corny as it may be i enjoy those episodes you know so this one starts out really good but you know it just I, i'm serious by by the second part of this in issue five it horribly degrades into a an absolutely moronic tale of you know Klingons and psychic whammies and uh, just God knows what else. It's it's made worse by the fact that Spock, you know Spock even points out the 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 half witted plot. You know he state he said something and I'm paraphrasing, but he says something about you know how how all the technology to do this haunted house and everything is just an incredible waste of the energy and the amazing new technology that the Klingons have stumbled across to be able to do all this. You know, because it turns out to be just some big Klingon ploy to do something stupid. You know, those were my feelings exactly. If they've got the technology to build this great big thing and totally make you believe that it's a it's a haunted house floating out in space with these ghosts and goblins and stuff in it, why in the hell would they do all that when they could just destroy the Enterprise or anybody else? You know, why why don't they just get their way by using this technology as a, as a full blown weapon? What what's the deal with this haunted house? It just it, the whole thing is stupid and doesn't make any sense. And I, I really get the feeling that Marv Wolfman set the story up in the first one, and maybe something happened. Maybe he got dismissed or. or I don't know, but you know the fact that there's a second writer on the on the second half, and that's where the whole thing falls apart makes me wonder if maybe he just handed a hot potato to this guy with no setup for where it was supposed to go, and the and the guy did the best he could and just dropped the ball. You know what I mean? So you know, even compared to some of Star Trek's you know less than finer moments like Cat's Paw or spock's brain or something this one still comes out like a real stinker it just i was it, mildly curious about reading these and now i'm not well i mean the you know like anything there there's there's bits and pieces but uh you know i i'll i'll do my best the ones that are you know that are worthy i'll, I'll do my best to to play them up but unfortunately this is going to be pretty indicative of the whole series, sadly. I mean, to, to my memory, and I'm glad to be rereading this because there's so much of these that I forgot. But to my memory, the very best issue they ever had was, unfortunately, the very last issue, too. So it was too late to, to save the book, you know. But anyway, the last one I've got tonight is uh, issue number six. And, you know, this was somewhat of a step back up. It's uh, it's an old-fashioned murder mystery, and this one's you know an, an old-fashioned murder mystery aboard the Enterprise, you know, and it's written by uh, again by Mike W. Barr. It's got the uh, art again by Cockerman Jansen, and 
you know, I, I know I said, you know, good old fashioned. Well, that's, it's a bit of a stretch because, you know, the premise is good. It's just, again, it's the delivery of the whole thing. Basically, the story in this is there's an ambassador on this planet. You know, he's whole and hearty when he's down, you know, standing on the on the pad waiting to beam up. Well, he comes up to the Enterprise, you know, he arrives on the transporter pad and everything. He's dead with a with a knife in his back, which is a pretty cool premise. You know, what, what happened to him in transit is basically the mystery. You know, how did this guy die beaming up? And, uh... Spock and McCoy, you know, they basically go into detective mode and, you know, they're they're doing their research and they're playing on their computers and doing this and doing that. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how in the world is, is this possible? And to make a long, kind of boring story short, somebody pulled a switcheroo, you know, which is kind of what you come to expect in this anyway, that somehow somebody substituted something for something or, or did something weird. But uh, but this is where the story fell apart. At least for me, is is basically they somebody on another ship, like in close proximity to the Enterprise, somehow was able to I don't know deflect or intercept or something the the transporter beam, make it go all screwy, and they basically just substituted a dead ringer for the real ambassador, and. I'm pretty sure that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm no, you know, Scotty, but, you know, this is the new advanced movie enterprise. It's supposed to have all these bells and whistles. I mean, don't they have technology for this kind of thing to where they can't be fooled, you know, with, with lookalikes or something like that coming through the transporter? I mean, yeah, wouldn't you would they think be a the- transporter would be pretty strongly locked down just by the nature of. Yeah. It's a sort of life or death thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, here's a thing that, you know, supposedly from from what we've seen in different documentaries and specials on TV and whatever else that, you know, if the transporter technology were were real, one molecule out of place and the whole thing falls apart. So I don't see how you can substitute anything. It's got to be the real article in order for it to reassemble or whatever. I it just it was an interesting premise. I, I like the idea of the story, but it was just, you know, when you get the reveal that, well, you know, well, we intercepted your transporter beam and we substituted our own dead person. It just doesn't work. It, the whole thing falls apart, and the and the specifics and the technology are, are pretty sketchy and wonky. I thought. But what makes this one worth the price of admission, though, is there's a scene in this. Where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you know, they do the let's disguise ourselves as the local aliens thing and they go down to the planet to do a little more investigating. Well, the, the, the race in this book look very much like Sesame Street style Muppets, you know, with the, with the like the blue face and the big red nose and the, and the blue, you know, like mutton chops and stuff. So those scenes of the three of them disguised at these these Muppet looking aliens is is it's just freaking hysterical. You gotta see it to appreciate it. So it's definitely worth worth uh checking out. But uh whew, that's it for this time on, on the, the Marvel's uh comics uh Star Trek and I'll I'll do the huh. next uh, Let me six tell you that's enough, time. man. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty rough. <laughs> Ruff, ruff.
And we that's need, why we need, a, we need not... a dog. It'd be like, so what did you think of that episode? Ruff, ruff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm not going. Uh, we're not going to do the the issue by issue super breakdown on those because they're just sorry, they're just not deserving. All right, well, let's move on into the other universe, into the DC universe, mm-hmm. and uh, and this Star Trek takes up right where. Um, after after Star Trek Two, the Rathacon. Yes, so you know Spock is Spock is no, notoriously notoriously conspicuously missing from the cover of this collector this star spanning collector's issue. So uh, basically, it starts out like a lot of Star Trek uh, um, stories do with another starship, the USS Gallant, and it's. Uh, and it's attacked and destroyed as it's patrolling the neutral zone by a bunch of Klingon ships that are appearing seemingly from nowhere and just creaming them. So before they blow up, the commander launches a log buoy of what just happened. And uh, we find on one of the Klingon ships, it's uh, Captain Koloth leading leading the attack. Meanwhile, back on Earth, uh, um, a just post, you know, Wrath of Khan Kirk is... Uh, requesting that he uh, has command of the Enterprise, and uh, much to the elation of his crew, they uh, tell him he can have the Enterprise back, and immediately they're sent to the neutral zone to investigate the destruction of the Gallant. So uh, as, they're, as they're heading there, Kirk breaks up a fight between two crewmen, and uh, one of those crewmen is... Uh, Ens- is, uh, is it Ensign Bryce? Yes, it's Ensign yeah, Bryce. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and uh, she's fighting with another guy, and uh, both of their parents were on the on the um, gallant. As a matter of fact, um, Ensign Bryce's father was was the commander. The was the science oh, officer Bryce? Yeah, he's pissed. The guy that's <clears throat> bitch slapping her is because his father was the commander, and her father was the science officer. And I guess he feels that if her father had done his job as right. the science officer, then then you know they might not have gotten destroyed or something like right. that. So yeah, so there's so you know Kirk breaks up a fight between Ensign Bryce and another guy because over um, the destruction of the gallant, whose fault it was, and. Uh, so Kirk sort of breaks it up and grabs Ensign Bryce and says, "Come on, we're going up. You know, come on, you're up to going up to the bridge. I'm going up to the bridge." And and uh, so they get on the bridge and Kirk decides, now that they've gotten to the neutral zone, he's going to use the Enterprise as bait to lure out the Klingons. So uh, he's just. I assume when he says that that they're just going to sort of float around in the neutral zone and and hope. In, in the area of where the gallant was, because that's where they are. They're amid the wreckage of the gallant. And, uh, of course, it works, and uh, all of a sudden, all these Klingon ships, you know, bird of preys appear and just start peppering the Enterprise with with shots. And uh, Kirk immediately picks up on the sort of one-two punch that they're doing on the Enterprise and uh, decides, the, the you know, the way to, to fight them is to use it against them. So anticipate you know after a few attacks he can sort of anticipate what their next move and uh you know by a maneuver of shifting the shields and the the power of the phasers um and knowing that the klingons have to drop their shields to fire he um he does his own little one two attack and uh blows up two of the ships and uh leaves two of them 
alive, but pretty se severely uh, screwed up, and they just sort of limp off. One of those ships being Koloth's ship, and um, and aboard Koloth's ship, there's some uh, seemingly either rogue Klingon or a really softy Klingon. I don't know what his deal is, but he's very upset about how things are going, and he's trying to send signals to the Enterprise to, you know, give them clues as to what's going on in this whole situation. And, uh, so after the battle, uh, Savick, Mr. Savick, comes in to, uh, talk to Dr. McCoy, and, uh, she's kind of upset because she thinks Kirk's really sort of holding her up to Mr. Spock, and, you know, he, he expects her to be Mr. Spock, but she's not as experienced as Spock and she doesn't know Kirk as well so she feels that she just can't you know stand in Spock's shoes and he says oh, you you know you're right you know he's you know he's grieving or whatever I'll, I'll I'll see what I can do so um later on using the hocus pocus of science they 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 find out that the klingons are using a wormhole somehow to to um attack through and uh so Kirk puts together a team to go through the wormhole and figure out what's going on. So um, uh, the team consists of Kirk, Savick, and Ensign Bryce, and uh, it's it's sort of a, a nice touch because Savick wants to go and uh, asks him to go, and Kirk tells her, "Well, you know, I, you know, I've already decided that you're going to go, so you have no real decision in it." So. That was sort of a nice little show of support and uh, makes makes McCoy very happy because he thinks to himself, Attaboy, Jim! Attaboy, Jim! So um, so what happens is they uh, put Savick in a, in a shuttle and they're going to just have her pilot the shuttle through the wormhole while Kirk and Bryce beam over in um, thruster suits, which that sounds pretty scary, Beaming, beaming's scary enough, but beaming through a wormhole is pretty scary, and and everybody seems kind of sketchy about it. But it all works out. They beam, they beam out through the wormhole, and uh, when they come out on the other side, they see this humongous space station, giant Klingon space station, with a whole bunch of bird of prey's docked to it. And uh, that's sort of where it's left off. That's uh, leading into issue, issue number two. Now, going in kind of reverse order here of of my notes, you you had talked about the 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 warp sled, the the shuttle, I guess it right. is, the warp sled attached. Right, Did you understand? Right. That was the one part of this I didn't get. Is what what's the deal? All right, she's taking a shuttle in, and but maybe they have to be in. in. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe we don't know yet. Maybe that's going to have something to do in the next issue. Uh, okay. And how it resolves, you know, that maybe he has a plan for the shuttle and they just haven't let us in on it yet. And, and yeah, and the warp sled, I wasn't sure what that's for. Do you maybe have to reach warp speed to go into a wormhole and, you know, and all that. And beaming someone through a wormhole, I don't know if that just doesn't seem right either because it's just like a, a wormhole is like a distortion in time and space. Right. Well, they end up doing it. Uh, they end up doing it in a in a really fantastic episode of Voyager in the first season. Uh -huh. It was it was like the first episode I can remember watching. Going, okay, maybe this show won't entirely suck after all, because they they beam a guy 
through a wormhole to their ship. So, I mean, you know, okay, it, so it's, it's in that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like a good what, like eighty, ninety years after all this. So, yeah. The the thing about the wormhole that actually bugged me more than that was. Uh, uh, let me see if I can find it here. There was the page at the briefing. It's just kind of a minor thing, and I guess it's more for the for the reader. But you know, Scotty pitches the idea that what's what's going on, what this energy thing is, they're trying to figure out is that it's caused by a wormhole, and right. then McCoy goes wormhole, Scotty, like he doesn't know. Well, they should all know what it is because they went through one in the first movie, yep. right? Right before this, you know, and, very and dramatically was, went through yeah. one. And McCoy was on the bridge and all shaken up about it at the yeah. time, you know, because he had a smart-ass remark about it. So, I mean, he know, he should know what a wormhole is. You know, they they all should. But I, get, I think that was more for the reader's benefit, you know, so that they, they had somebody, you know, to ask the question for the reader, basically. But uh, what, what did you think of this overall? I love it. I love the art. Um, you know, the story is standard Star Trek. It's nothing spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um I love the artwork. Uh, the people in it are good. You can tell who's who, but the spaceships are drawn beautifully in it. And I like the way they portray the shields on the ship. You know, you can sort of see the sort of see the the shields projected around them, as and you know it's not what they look like, but it give, just gives you an idea. I just love it. The the center spread with the Enterprise blowing up uh, the two Klingon ships. So you, so you do gorgeous. like the interior art then? I do like the interior art. Uh, I, the I exterior art I like uh, the you know the cover is beautiful. I love George Perez. Especially, you know, that and it's it's just classic Perez too, that detailed. Mm-hmm. The interior art it has a little bit of that gold key element to it, especially in the way the people are drawn. You know, See, that, I, that sort of, think... it's it's almost a little the people are almost like have a little cheapness cheap yeah. comicness to it but the ships are drawn be- I, I I don't know I like it I like how it works that's what worked for me in this series was that you know the 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 prior series to this would be the the Marvel comic series that I just talked about that one had actually the opposite problem whereas the people and everything looked very good. It was very good comic book art of people and action shot. You know, Marvel's great with that, with you know, characters in action. So that characters always looked really good. The likenesses were always very good of the characters. But a lot of times the ships and the ship battle and the ship effects kind of yeah. suffered, I think. They didn't you know, once uh once the primary team left the book and they just seemed to have fill in artist after fill in artist, a lot of them suffered. Whereas this, it was the opposite problem. I think the ships and the battles and the warp effects and all that look fantastic. But why I eventually dropped this series after a while was I just got tired of the people. I never, I never did think that they really nailed people very well. You know, I, I didn't right. think the likenesses were very good a lot of the time, and and it, it just got to kind of wear on me after a while. But uh, you know, that's just the art. The story I thought was was really good. It's pure Star Trek. It's it feels like Star Trek. You know, now uh-huh. continuity wise, it's going to be screwy because yeah, you know how what you know how can you anticipate you, you know Star Trek three, mm-hmm. and it just sort of operates outside of that. There's there's parts that probably could fit with a right. little bit of you know retroactive you know tinkering Truly or what building, but yeah right off yeah. the bat that scene with 
Kirk going to the admiral and requesting the assignment and all that, you know, the, all that's contradicted because we see the Enterprise come to Earth, you know, to the Earth station and all that, you know, in the very beginning of three, and we're led to believe that, you know, the ship's not even been, you know, repaired yet from right. the battle with Khan and all that. Right. So it does kind of, you know, put the lie to to everything, you know. Yeah, in the but folks. what are you gonna do? Yeah, there's nothing yeah. they could do at that point. You know, they just they basically just had to get. You know, I mean, if you're gonna do a Star Trek comic, you got to get Kirk and and crew placed mm -hmm. in the Enterprise and have them off in space. So, but I, I think they still did manage to do some some really good stories, as we'll see coming along here. A couple things I had real quick was, uh, um. You had said something about the the Klingon ships being uh, being birds of prey. They're they're actually the Klingon battle cruisers. They're the, they're the much bigger ships. You know the, uh. the, like the like the big bulk things. And I'm not trying to be a jerk pointing that out. It's just I know somebody will call us on it and oh, say, "That's okay. Those aren't, those aren't birds of prey." But yeah, that because we didn't. We, I didn't feel like we ever saw enough of the traditional. Uh, Klingon battle cruisers in the movies. You know, we saw them bits and pieces here and there. But now, what were the birds of, of prey? Were they the ones that were the same as the Romulan ships? Or what, no, the, bir I, the birds of prey was the one like they had in Star Trek Four that they came back to Earth with. The one that was more green and looked kind of like a well, it kind of looks like a big bird. You know, when it has the wings yeah. down, it looks like a big hawk or something like that. Though that's yeah. the bird of prey. The the battle cruiser is more the big gray cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one. And I just like those because they look mean to me. You know, they always look like uh, I don't know. They look like a big vulture or something. You know, yeah. they got the big long neck and and all that. They look like some kind of squat, you know, bird of not bird of prey, but just like <laughs> a, like bird of uh, of uh, you know, like a carrion bird. You know right. what I mean? Like they were coming in to to pick up the pieces after you were a already scavenger. dead or something. Yeah. But uh, I also noticed right in the first page, I'm pretty sure that that splash page is also the promo poster that was in comic shops. Like when this came out, I'm pretty sure I've seen that as a poster somewhere, and I, I wish I had it. I don't. I don't actually have a, the promo poster for uh, for this particular series, but I wish I did. I'm pretty sure it's that same piece of art. And then that mission statement that it gives, you know, these are the voyages and all that. That was the newer version that Spock. Gave at the end of uh, end of Star Trek Two, like just before they go to the the credits and all that. That was the one that they read it because it's a little bit different than the one that Kirk gave on the series. Yeah, just the ongoing mission and was it like new life forms? Yeah, new life yeah. forms instead of new life. Yeah, but now it said the Klingon's name was Captain Koloth. I wonder if this is going to turn out to be the same Captain Koloth from uh, from Trouble with Tribbles. That's what I'm thinking. You know, yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. You know, Koloth could be the Smith of Klingon. You know, yeah, that's true. So. Well, I mean, we do eventually. I mean, this, you know, of course, that's years later, and it has nothing to do with this. But we do eventually see Koloth again on uh, on Deep Space Nine, and he does look like one of these turtlehead Klingons. Right. You know, so so they did eventually change. Him and I don't know if there was ever an explanation given for the smooth head and the and yes. the turtle head, or not. But yes, there was a virus or something that was going through the Klingon population and killing them. And uh, 
there was some so whatever the cure was that they all had to you know when they all had to they found the cure to it that was one of the side effects or there or there had to be some sort of genetic tinkering something happened and that was a side effect of the cure to this thing that was wiping out the klingon race that would suck man i mean it'd be bad enough to look like you had a big turtle shell on your forehead but then you take like you know you you take your Tylenol pill or whatever, and then you turn into a guy that looks like yeah. Trelane with a goatee. That would totally <laughs> suck. You're not you're, you you know you're not thinking like Klingons are the bikers of the universe, so they would love to get that you know to tell them that like here drink this and you'll grow a bony growth on top of your head that makes you look like an evil like thuggish animal they would be they would be chugging or, that stuff but it was down, the other like, way around though wasn't it i mean they they originally looked like the turtle head guys and then the the cure was that they looked like humans during the course of of the original tv series and then they eventually reverted back to the turtle head guys right because that's why wharf is a turtle head guy oh i right? thought it was no i thought it was all like i thought it, it must have i'm thinking it must have the tur the turtle headedness happened in the timeline somewhere during the original five-year mission because by by star trek the motion picture they're all turtle heads right but what i'm saying though is did they start out as turtle heads and then the oh cure well, that's seats? right they're turtle heads in enterprise too aren't yeah, they yeah yeah i think yeah. that's just stupidity on enterprise's part <laughs> and i think the whole like you know virus thing is an, another retroactive you know Somebody wrote it somewhere into yeah. the continuity. It's in like it, I, I was looking up Klingon physiology, and when I was looking up Klingon physiology, don't ask why, but um, that one of the things they were talking about was that you know the turtle head, the the cure f that caused the turtle head. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. I can't, no, it I doesn't. I always liked Worf's explanation best because in that in in Trials and Tribulations in Deep Space Nine, when they actually travel back in time and they right. wind up and in the issue was uh, forced. <laughs> yeah, and he he just flat out says, you know, we we don't talk about it with outsiders, and that's it. You know, that's all yep. the explanation that he gives, and it's an in joke to the fact that. You know, it's all because, you know, they were on a limited budget. Right. <laughs> and that was what they looked like, you know, and that's it. Well, that's as far as – and yep. that's all the explanation. All I had to say is like one, one day the creators got more money and so we got <laughs> turtle heads. <laughs> we all got turtle heads. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> oh, God. Let me see. What else have I got? What else have you got on this one? Oh, that's a – that's about it, you know. I mean, there's there's plenty of like Star Trek two references. There's a nice shot of Kirk reading his reading his book with his glasses on, and he looks like Dirty Harry. Actually, he looks like Clint Eastwood reading his book, and then he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the next frame. So it's weird. There's it's like there's a few too many though. Did you did did you think or, or well, not? Well, you know that yeah, there always is. Uh, you know yeah. they they uh, they. Just try. That's what they've got to work with, you know. That's what they started out to work with. So they're using as much of it as possible. They they always do that, and it drives me a little crazy because I remember with uh, the the one that really drove me nuts. But they all do this to a certain degree. Is sure there'll be a comic, you know, a comic based on a movie or a TV series or whatever, you know, something like this or, or Star Wars or whatever. 
and the, a new movie will come out, and then all of a sudden, all the references and all the stuff that's going on is from that movie. And it, it always drove me a little crazy because I remember in one of the very first post The Empire Strikes Back issues of Star Wars, Luke battled a probe droid. Right. We'd never seen a probe droid until Empire. Now all of a sudden, there's a probe droid chasing Luke. The next around. issue like, after the movie comes out. Yeah. yeah, of course. And the same thing with because uh, they were hungry I, for anything new oh, that yeah. they could get. Well, I remember the one that really drove me nuts was uh, when Marvel was doing the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, which was you know it was a good series in the in the beginning, in the beginning of it, and then of it, it kind of petered out, but. In one of the first post-Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom issues, which is actually a prequel to Raiders, um, Short Round shows up. And it just didn't make any sense. Why, Why all of a sudden is this kid showing up years later... In something that didn't, I mean, you know, like I said, you know, Temple of Doom was a prequel. It just, that was the one that, even as a kid, I remember reading that going, all right, that's just really forced. You know, they're just, that's just a tie-in with the movie, you know? (laughs) But yeah, I I noticed that a lot with this because like, all right, here's, here's me flying my geek flag right here. There's a mention when they start into their mission that they're going to Section 14 of Gamma Hydra. That's the same place that they were in, in the computer simulation at the very beginning of Star Trek II when Savick was in command of the of the simulator enterprise doing the Kobayashi Maru. It's the same coordinates. So, you know, just one reference too many, I thought. But, I mean, who, who besides a geek like me even catches things like that? Oh, but there's still. plenty of geeks like you who caught that, I'm sure. That's why they threw it in there. <laughs> But, oh, yeah. And there's, you know, and I just had, you know, creating a matter antimatter imbalance in my engines, and I just had them recalibrated after that Sinner Khan almost did us in two. <laughs> I love that moment because you know that Scotty walked out going, son of a yeah. bitch. You know, he's just. No, he says, sigh, my poor engines, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing. You <laughs> <laughs> Back to his quarters and got stinking shit faced with his. What, what did he? What was it? He was always drinking. I forget. <laughs> was it scotch? Got, that would make sense. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but overall, yeah, I really like this. I, I thought this first issue, this first, this whole first series, as I recall, is good. I have not read ahead. I've decided I'm going to read these. In order and just let things come back to me as as they yep. may or may not. But yep. as I recall, this first initial story was pretty good. I'm curious to see where it goes beyond this. But uh, yeah, I, I did. I got a real kick out of it. I was I was glad to see the thruster suits again. I, yep. I always thought that was one of the cooler things from the first movie. It, it was nice to see that back. And never came back, right? Yeah. Yeah, they did. They they you know because they had to do a regular monthly book. A lot more of those little things you know do end up coming back, and that was one of the things I thought that the DC series did a lot better than the Marvel series was. You know that thing I was talking about earlier with the big wide open spaces and all. You did see a lot more of the Enterprise yeah. as these series go on. You know than than you ever saw in in prior you know comic book incarnations and even in a lot of the books you know it's they're so involved with whatever alien world or whatever 
you know, and again, you know, when when you've got a monthly comic to put out, then you get a lot more time and you got a lot more space to, you know, tell you know stories of you know down in the boiler room or whatever, yeah. you know. So you know, you get to see a lot more of, of you know what was going on in daily life in the ship and stuff. I, I like that kind of thing, and we we do eventually get more of it. So yeah, I'm excited to be reviewing this one. All in all, a and, good beginning, and yep. That one's all for the all for the listeners. They demanded it, so there we go. There it is. Now we've committed right. ourselves to months and months of Star Trek comics. <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! All right, but now we move to the cathode ray and dun, some dun, dun. hardcore Trek. Yeah, we'll be right back. Neutralizer. The little mental reconditioning. We're gonna give you guys a little bit of uh oh what 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 do they call it? A uh attitude adjustment. No neutralizer It's great doing two true freaks. I love my show. I'm Captain Kirk. And now, sit back and relax as we uncork a bottle of Vintage Kirk, brought to you by Master of Motor, William Shatner. Hmm. You're madly in love with Helen, Captain. You'd lie, cheat, steal for her, sacrifice your career, your reputation. No, Doctor, no! Okay. You feel it, Captain? You must have her or the pain grows worse. The pain, the longing for her. For years you've loved her, Captain. For years. For years I've loved you. You must continue to remember that, Captain. Now, she's gone. Helen! Take your phaser weapon and drop it on the floor. I must drop it. And now your community. Drop it on the floor. Kirk to Enterprise. Oh! We are back, and through the magic of internet radio, we've been gone for what most of a week. But Something to you, like that. It's, it's been the bare tick of the clock. So we're going to wrap this episode up with our review of the classic Star Trek episode, Dagger of the Mind. Yes, uh, one of my all-time favorites. So our story starts out: the Enterprise is beaming some supplies down to a. Uh, Mental facility slash penal colony Tantalus Five, and and they're sending him down some supplies on a routine run, and they beam back some uh, a box that's bound to go someplace else from Tantalus Five, 
and stowed away on that box is an obviously crazy, sweaty man who uh, climbs out of the box, knocks out the the, the transporter operator, and uh, starts roaming the Enterprise. Uh, it turns out this is Dr. Simon Van Gelder. Um, at first, they, they, he's uh, um, told to be a patient, but you know they they later find out he's uh, um, uh, has been a doctor at the the facility. And uh, the facility on Tantalus Five is uh, is sort of an experimental colony run by Dr. Tristan Adams, who seems to be a fairly famous psychologist, and has had, you know, um, new and revolutionary ideas of dealing with the mentally ill and uh, trying to move away from the 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 people in cages and medication model of 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 the old style. So um, he tells the Enterprise, you know. Um, this guy's, you know, escaped from here. Uh, he's he's potentially dangerous, and and they they catch him and subdue him up on the bridge when he uh, tries to take over, and uh, have him strapped down. And they're trying to find out who he is, and something's wrong with the guy. He's sweating. He seems to have trouble p putting words out whenever he tries to talk about, you know, who he is or what he was doing. Um, you know, he seems to be in great pain. He keeps babbling on about a neural neural neutralizer <laughs> and uh he you know he manages to get his his name out and neural neutralizer and um kirk decides well i'm gonna go i'm gonna go um you know invest investigate this so kirk asks mccoy to send up his uh his best psychiatrist from from sick base so he sends up dr helen noel who obviously has had some sort of literally christmas party party meeting with kirk Maybe there was some flirtation. You don't really, you know, it's it's hinted at. You don't know if he's actually slipped her the Kirk or if, you know, it was just like maybe a drunken makeout after the Christmas party. But they've got some little history because they they they're making eyeballs at each other and Kirk is, you know, trying to trying to keep it at a, a professional level. So they they beam down and uh, immediately you can tell uh, once they meet uh, Dr. Tristan Adams who runs the site that uh Kirk smells a rat. Something's up. Um Dr. Adams has this very nice looking colony, very smoothly running, but everybody's a little goofy and he's sort of evasive with Kirk's question questions. Uh Helen Noel, on the other hand, is obviously a big fan of uh Dr. Adams and is sort of poo pooing Kirk's Kirk's concerns. So as they're, as they're getting a tour of the uh of the facilities, they find uh uh, a room where uh, the, there's a patient strapped in and with a little eyeball sort of hal looking thing pointing at him making a nice humming throbbing noise while they shine flashy lights on him and he says what's this oh well this is a neural neutralizer this was a, a therapy we developed that wasn't really that effective but you know we still use it because you know we don't we don't want to give up hope but it it generally calms the brain and and helps people relax so um you know they they they're watching and and they give Kirk a little demonstration and uh he asks the oddly blank technician who's operating him to show him how it works and there's it's literally like two dials to operate it so it's a very simple machine I and uh and Kirk really you know is is starting you can tell he's on to something he's he's suspicious so he's sort of hanging out watching this and Dr. Adams comes back and grabs him and um you know, 
um, they're they're invited to stay overnight. So Kirk and uh, Helen are talking, and Kirk says, "Look, I wanna, I wanna see what that neural neutralizer's up to. You know, I don't, I don't know what the deal is with this, but uh, I, I want to check this thing out because uh, something's wrong. Do you think if uh, I got in the neural neutralizer, you could run it and uh, you can see what happens?" And she says, "Sure." So they go out, and she's, she's, um, you know, uh, putting a few suggestions into Kirk's head as they as they turn the neural neutralizer up to one, and telling him he's hungry, and then he's like, "Yeah, you know, when we're done with this, we get something to eat," and uh, so uh, he tells her to do a little more, a little stronger suggestion, and and she starts setting up, you know, a whole uh, the whole scenario of how Kirk seduced her after the Christmas party. And uh, sort of, so she's using it sort of for a flirtatious manner. And uh, while this is all happening, Doctor Van Gelder and his and his goons come in and realize, you know, that the gig is up. And at, at, at the same time, on the Enterprise, Spock is f- finding out what's going on because uh, he, you know, they're trying to ask Van Gelder what's going on, and and he obviously can't answer the question properly. So. Spock decides to give him a Vulcan mind melt. And uh, so, you know, by this time, um, there's nothing the Enterprise can do, even though they know that Kirk's in danger because there's a force field over the whole the whole colony that has to be deactivated before anybody can beam down or communicate. So, meanwhile, Kirk's in the, in the neural neutralizer chair and... and um, Dr. Adams is cranking the neutral neuralizer up to spinal tap levels of 11 and um, torturing Kirk by setting up, you know, a whole love affair with, with Helen Noel and then, you know, pulling the rug out from under him and sending him into depression and just generally tortures Kirk and, you know, puts a lot of post-hypnotic suggestions, which, of course, with Kirk, don't really work. He, um, He's he's pretty much fighting the neural neutralizer, and um, he and Helen hatch a plot, and uh, Helen is able to kill the power to the to the force field, allowing Spock and uh, a crew to beam down and uh, get things under control. Meanwhile, though, the problem is when uh, they cut the power, um, and Kirk jumped out of the neutral neural neutralizer he, and knocked out Doctor Van Geller. The problem is when uh, when the power went out, Kirk was able to get out of the grasp of the neural neutralizer and knock out Dr. Adams, but he neglected to take him out of the room where the neural neutralizer is. So when, um, after all his goons are subdued and, and Spock and those guys turn the power back on, Van Gelder's stuck in the room with the, with the neural neutralizer on 11 and nobody putting in any kind of uh, input. So his brain is just basically erased. Simon Van Gelder is is taken and and uh, I assume they put him in the neural neutralizer and take off all the the stuff that had been keeping him quiet and he's put in charge of the colony and all is well except for Dr. Adams who even um even Kirk who had been tortured by him in the neural neutralizer chair kind of felt sorry for the guy having his brain emptied out similar to the way our brains empty out weekly, <laughs> monthly on this show. <laughs> Great episode. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, sort of a simple story. It didn't take me long to sum it up, but it's just chock full of Star Trekky acting goodness. Just from beginning to end. Well, A, Simon Van Gelder, um, I guess he was an opera type actor. He did a lot of opera, which allowed him to surely really project. <laughs> that guy projects. He's got a big old voice. He sweats and quivers <laughs> and his hair's all fucked up and oh yeah I mean he it's 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 a Shatner esque Montalban esque Trek performance of sheer overrottedness. I mean <laughs> we used to watch that when we were kids. any any character as soon as you see a character in Star Trek and they've got a glaze of sweat on their face you know it's going to be good. You just know it's going to be good. And this this one is full of that aspect. And you get to... I mean, there's there's a point where Kirk gets... gets a nice... <laughs> a nice bath of sweat on his face when he's put in the neural neutralizer. Neutralizer! I do. I love, love this episode. And, and this is another one, like, like kind of similar to Wolf in the Fold that we did last time, where... It, a lot of it's for laughs. A lot of it, the reason I like it so much, I mean, it does have a really good story and all that, don't get me wrong, but a lot right. of it is just because it just freaking cracks me up, man. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, there's so much of it that's over the top with the neural neutralizer, both with, with Van Gelder and with Kirk, you know, their, their reactions and stuff like that. Plus, I like making fun of the, uh, of the, the guy who, who plays, uh, Dr. Adams, cause, uh, I mean that guy. He, I hate to call him a lousy actor, but there's that one part where they toast, and you know you got Lethe standing in the background like a complete zombie, and then <laughs> he's standing there doing his little to the stars and to man and blah blah blah, and I'm like, wow, that sucks. And even Shatner. <laughs> I mean, I watched Shatner for his reaction. And even Shatner has this look on his face like. Uh, what a cornball, you know. And if if Shatner's looking at you like that, thinking that, then <laughs> you must you, suck. Yeah, something's <laughs> up. That guy, the guy who plays Doctor Adams, he reminds me of the actor, just not as good, but he reminds me visually of the uh, actor. Uh, is it? I think it's Paul Dooley. I want to say Tom Dooley, but that's a, a Irish drinking song. Oh, it's from a, uh, Paul Dooley, that was from, Wimpy and he was Popeye. Wimpy. He yeah. was he was yeah. in. Um, <laughs> He's been in a lot of movies. He was in The Father in Breaking Away. He plays a f father a lot. He was a father in Sixteen Candles. And, they and you know, this guy looks like a younger version of him. They have that very similar sort of face, you know. And, I uh, like the part where Kirk finally belts him near the end of the episode, and he just, like, karate uh, chops him. He's like, ah! And he falls down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, it's funny because Kirk obviously like admires Doctor Adams at first before he actually meets him. He's you know on the Enterprise he's like, hey, this guy, you know, McCoy's like a cage is a cage, Jim, and he's like, oh no, I've been to some of these you know colonies and <laughs> it's really progressive. Yeah, he's really progressive with his ideas, and Kirk seems to generally genuinely admire him, just sort of like Helen does until he meets him. The second he meets him, Kirk's like. Mm, rat, I smell a big fat rat, and he's, you know, Kirk is instantly asking all the right questions, and he notices that Doctor Adams has a pat answer for all of it, and and I just want to mention something as long as we're talking about acting right here, and uh, um, 
one of our one of our uh, biggest posters on our forum, Biblio Mike, was talking about you know how Shatner isn't given, especially in the first season, a lot of credit for for some of the subtlety in his acting. That people see the you know the over the top stuff, and there's some there's some good subtlety in this one, mixed in with the over the top. You know, there's there's over the topness, and there's um. The, and and what I'm specifically referring to is the whole um, um, thing with Kirk and Helen, you know, and and that you mm-hmm. get that in in the short amount of time and lines that they have, you find out that they had a little little bit of a little bit of something going on, and Kirk kind of regrets it, and Helen was into it. Helen Helen is being <laughs> flirty, and. Uh, some of it's not that subtle. Like when they first beam down to Tantalus and they're standing outside the door, um, Helen's sitting there in her mini in her little mini skirt, and she's like, got her hands on her thighs, rubbing her thighs up and down as she's talking to Kirk, you know. Which, you know, I <laughs> I, I immediately noticed that. And uh, well, you know, she. Uh... It's funny you should mention uh, Biblio Mike because he he brought up the whole subject of of Helen Noel on the on the forum and all and uh, what was it I, what was it he called her? Let me see, I, I've got it right here somewhere. I don't I don't want to misquote him or anything. It's uh, oh here it is. He called her and I quote a hot choice piece of ass. And you know <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree more, Biblio Mike. She, no, she's she beautiful. Really yeah, is. she is. She's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah well, she is well, everybody knows with, Kirk yeah. has good taste. Well, know? not always though, because look at uh, what's her name, Ruth from uh, from Shore Leave. She's got the Miss Piggy face going on, man. She's not she's not attract. She's like Kirk's um um oh, what's Bill Clinton's woman's name there? Uh, Hillary? <laughs> no, 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 no. The other oh, one. Oh, Monica but, Lewinsky. Oh, yeah, she's Kirk's <laughs> Monica Lewinsky for sure. She's got she's got the oinker face going on. But yeah, she. I mean, Kirk. I mean, he he had a couple kind of kind of you know not so attractive women, but Helen Noel. I mean, she's she's really she's something, man. She's cute. She had even the, by modern you know beauty standards, she's she's very cute. Well, she's she's they've got the outfit. I mean, that 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 the Star Trek miniskirt outfit was just an awesome thing. Mm-hmm. It was an awesome thing, and you could tell it was Gene Roddenberry's idea. <laughs> nothing I think, wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, it's funny. I saw um, somewhere that somebody was selling in an auction that very uh, on uh, eBay that very outfit that Helen Noel wore. Which, oh wow! Yeah. So you know, maybe that might be something you might want to buy for your for a present for your wife, quote unquote, present for your wife, which would be actually a present for. I'm you. still trying to save up for that um, Linda Carter Wonder Woman outfit. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah. <laughs> it's still there too. They keep lowering the price by ten bucks every time they relist it. So maybe eventually. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a waiting game right now. And uh, what have yeah. you got for notes on this? One? I got a ton of notes on this one. I, I don't know what you've got. Well, one of the most I think important thing. Well, well, one thing aside from my notes is I I did watch this one as a uh, remastered or um, I think they're calling them Star Trek remastered where they where they beef up the shots of the Enterprise and the planets look more like planets and not just a blob of light mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, the only really notable 
cool thing is when they first beam down to Tantalus, and there's a there's a long shot of them beaming down. You know, they they did a really nice big uh, map painting of the outside of the Tantalus colony as sort of this raised platform, but it still looks like a map painting from that era. They they fit it in really good. So they and, didn't uh, just reuse the one from. Um from where no man has gone before because in the in the original right. unrevised version they just right. changed the doorway slightly where they beam down to but it's this it's pretty much no. the same exact map map painting no they redesigned it probably for that just to to fix that little piece of continuity probably too while they did it you know it's more like uh it's 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 really neat it's uh and at the same time it's not obtrusive you know it's not like the, it's not like the George Lucas effect where it just grabs you by the throat and throttles you and tells you that they're look it's something new hey look something new it's it fits in organically with the story um, I think probably my most important note I think for this show and it sort of slipped in as a story element I think they just needed to, to probably invent this to get the story going but it's the first Vulcan mind meld. It's yep. where the, the mind meld came in. And I'll bet you they were like, we got to figure out how to get this information from Van Gelder, you know, quickly and without too much goofing around. So they probably were like, ah, Spock knows something and he can suck it out of his brain. And that's <laughs> how the mind meld probably came about, I'll bet. I've got to do some reading up on it. But, you know, it, it really just had that feel of it, you know, of like, all right, Kirk is isolated down there. We got to get this information out of Van Gelder and whoever the the writer was was like, "All right, we'll we'll invent this to do this." And then it turned into this very useful thing for the rest of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And uh and it had been has been used for to good effect since then. And was also in a way um sort of the enabler part of partially the enabler of letting Spock come back to life after Star Trek two. You know, yeah, sort that's of his, true. his reverse mind meld on McCoy that they, they were able you know, it made it that much easier to graph that in there and uh and have it have it pass the sniff test. So that's <laughs> I think that's my most important, you know, no a lot of my notes I've already actually just sort of talked to which were about the acting and uh and uh, and uh, and uh, Lethe, we forgot to mention her. I I love my job. I love my work. It, it, and I she's need, oh man, she's so insanely <laughs> like so insanely wrong that it just makes me like when uh, for people who haven't watched it yet, and if you haven't watched it yet, you need to go to our Libsyn page and go to the um, link and watch it on YouTube. I think she and Scotty have the same hairdresser too. They both got the greasy matted look down pretty pretty good. Oh yeah, she's got that Donna, you know, day or you know, Night of the Living Dead, you know, she's just like <laughs> you know, with the bags under her eyes and the hair straight down and the like, you know, she's just she's in sort of I know she's supposed to be in the in this sort of flowing dress thing, but it looks like she's in her nightgown, you know, like sleepwalking, <laughs> and she's just so obviously brain, you know, just the the such obviously robotic brainwash demeanor, and 
and Kirk and and Kirk and Helen are just sort of like, hmm, you know, Kirk might just not be letting anybody know that he's thinking that's weird, but Helen doesn't seem to think anything's weird about her demeanor. And I, I've, I can only say I've only met people who were like that once, and the people that I met that were like that were followers of the Rajneeshi cult, and were brain, literally brainwashed cult members, and they were hi, we love Rajneeshi and. Here, have a Coors beer because we are invested in Coors beer. But um, and her name Lethe <laughs> is actually the name of I think the river of forgetfulness in hell. <laughs> okay. So how the hell do you know that? You looked it up. I read it somewhere. I read there's um um. <laughs> That's good though. I, if it was, I can't remember where I read it. I can't remember where I read it. But um, um, it might not be. I might be getting that mixed up with the River Styx, which is where the band Styx got its name. The River <laughs> Styx in hell. But it, it's left it left. It's from a river where if you drank the water from it, you would forget. So she was sort of a, a reference to that. Just some some nerd stuff that I usually don't like to mention, but since it's in my brain, I might as well get it out. Well, at least Kirk notices, though. That's one of the notes that I had, that Lethe is a zombie, but at least Kirk <laughs> notices. You know, where nobody else seems... Well, granted, the only other outsider there is Helen, but she doesn't... She either doesn't notice, or she doesn't seem to think anything. I, I think she's, she's just blinded. so enthralled by, yes. by uh, Dr. Adam's celebrity and... Right. Know, his Tom Hanks looking hair, so I, I think that's part of the problem with that whole. <laughs> it is. You know who he is, looks like? He looks like that dude jumps, from Fringe. Doesn't he look like the guy from Fringe, the the mad scientist doctor guy? I've never on seen it. Never oh, seen okay, it. Well, that's that's one in your court then, because that show sucks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he he does kind of. But uh, yeah, I've got a slew of notes on this one. Just just little little observations and weird little things I thought of. For one thing, where's Scotty? Who the hell is this guy operating the transporter? Where's Scotty? Is it his day off, or he's like sleeping off a good drunk, or could very know? well be? He, I mean, he can't work every shift, right? I guess he's he's off knifing more women and, to death. Well, you notice Kirk when Kirk deals with this guy, he's just sort of um um. Remember the guy's like, we're having trouble, and Kirk's like, here, let's call him up and have him put their shield down, you moron. And, you know, he's just, he's sort of he's nice about it, but it's he's sort of like, there you go, kid, you know. So, you know, maybe maybe this guy is like the Scotty's trainee is getting, you know, Scotty's like, I'm going to let you go today and be on your own, but don't okay. fuck up because the captain's coming. Of all the pieces of equipment on the Enterprise, is the transporter one that you want to put a fucking rookie on exactly. that doesn't know what the hell that they're doing well, so that the they can, like, scramble your molecules and you, you come out looking like that creature at the end of the fly or something well, like that? Well, you, you know? know, I mean, they were just sort of doing supplies at that time. I didn't, they, 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 they didn't know Van Gelder was going to be, like, in his, like, <laughs> hiding in the box. Well, that's another thing. Is don't they have some piece of oh, equipment, sh- something you- built into the transporter that would tell you, it's- "Hey, you know, this <laughs> box isn't a bunch of uh, a bunch of wrenches right. or it's, something. It's, it's, it's organic." Got a yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know that sort of technology is 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 basically used to its convenience in Star Trek, right? You know, because sometimes it's to their advantage 
for them to be able to know, you know, sometimes they could find the hair on a head, you know, they could beam one hair off Kirk's head using their, you know, they'd be like, oh, there's hair number six, eight, nine, two, five, four, two, one, seven, two. <laughs> and, you know, and, and there's Kirk and there's a female next to him. And other times they're like, I have no idea what's going on there. You know, I wish we could, you know. And sometimes they'll find an excuse like, they're under 50 miles of rock. How can we put the senses down there? But, you know, sometimes, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, you know. I guess maybe they could just say, well, they weren't, they didn't suspect anything would be funny, so they didn't, wouldn't check that. But you would think transporters would have all sorts of automatic fail safes and, and checks in, in place, you know. To... You would think so. All right, well, here's another one. And th this one's more of a nitpick because I, I see this kind of thing in other episodes. And as they, as I notice them, I'll point them out when, when I see it in other episodes. But there's the part where, it's right towards the beginning of the episode, and I can't remember exactly what's going on, but it's on the bridge, and Kirk's talking to somebody on his little comm panel thing on his, that's on his chair. I think he's talking to Dr. Adams, or he's talking to McCoy, or somebody on his little walkie-talkie that's built into his chair. And there's two dudes, two Enterprise crewmen, just sitting on the railing to Kirk's right. And I'm thinking, you know... Maybe it's, you know, because I worked so many years in retail, but, you know, we used to have a saying, if you got time to lean, you got time to clean. You know what I mean? Get off your asses and get to work. Why are these dudes just lounging around on, on the railing on Kirk's bridge? And Kirk doesn't seem like the kind of captain that would stand for that kind of shit. You know, normally he's, you know, he, he would yell at somebody or, you know, give yeah. them the, you know, a dirty look or something. Because there's one part. Well, a who leans around while the bo who who just lounges around when the boss is when there? The boss, you know? Yeah, right, right behind the boss. Yeah, exactly. That was the whole that was the whole feel of it. Was you know they're goofing off with the boss. You know, it's like no, 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 no. That just it, it seemed really silly when I saw it. I was like, no, that that doesn't happen. You know, but you know, because there's a part in uh, I think it's yeah, it's Trouble with Tribbles where. Uh, there's tribbles all over the bridge, and somebody, I think it's Chekhov, is sitting there petting a, a tribble while he's at his workstation, and Kirk yeah. like snatches it out of his hand and gives him a dirty look, like, oh yeah, you know, get your ass back to work, you know. Well, Kirk's trying to be. I mean, Kirk's always Kirk is, you know, for being the renegade and whatever. He's still he's still like pretty conservative, and he's still a very by tries to keep it by the books and tries to keep himself impartial or. You know, he you could see him trying to be professional with Helen in this, you know. He was like, Oh yeah, he sees her and he's like, mm. and then he's like, you know, tell McCoy that she better be the best <laughs> that right. he's got because obviously McCoy probably knew that, that like Kirk and Helen had a history and was like, Ha ha, I'll send her <laughs> He's always doing stuff like that. Oh yeah. I would too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another thing I noticed is uh Right towards the end of the episode, when they're when Spock beams down and they're they're escaping from the facility and all that, they go running out of the room with the with the big transformer thing where the guy got electrocuted. Spock actually touches Helen as she runs yes. out of the room past him, and this just seemed odd to me because, you know, for one, it's a it's a woman and all, you know, and Spock's not supposed to you know have any you know thing to do with that, but also Spock. 
I can't remember what episode this is referenced. Maybe it might be more than one episode, but Spock is a touch telepath, which means, you know, he's not comfortable touching people. You rarely ever see him like shake hands with anybody or anything like that. Like when they beam down to a new planet, No, or... he usually has his hands behind his back, right clasped behind his back. So it just struck me as odd that he would actually touch her as she was leaving the room. You know, like I say, it's, it's a small thing, but it was just something that I happened to notice. Well, the um, touch telepath thing was just sort of happening in this ep- this very episode, so he probably ah, had incorporated it into his, you know, there there was and like um, when I was um, listening to the um, Shatner talking about the movies on in his book about his movie mem- Shatner's movie memories, and he was talking about the TV show, and he said, you know, we didn't really have time to really think about developing our characters. It just happens over the shows. So the characters are developing as you get more scripts and things happen to them. And then, you know, you're fine-tuning all the little quirks and and things that your character would do and wouldn't do. And a lot of times, especially like in a first season or stuff, uh, you, you, you notice it especially with Spock. His character changes and develops over the course of it to buy... You know, the by the time the movies come about, Spock's character has finally got like his set of rules that he can live by, right? And not really have to adjust and change and add anymore. You know, but it took basically the TV show <laughs> to establish that. And you know, in the third season, there's some stuff that um, is problematic. But by that point, Nimoy was probably having a problem with it, too. You know, like back in the Cloudminders where he had his quote-unquote little romance with, you know, just a sort of random romance and flirtiness with the girl. He was probably like, you know, I don't think this is, you know, quite realistic for Spock's character. And they were probably like, yeah, but you know what? We need a new episode, so. (laughs) Right. I counted one he's dead, Jim, in this episode when... uh when Dr. Adam's brain is sucked out at the end of the end of the thing by the neutralizer it actually I think the line was he's dead captain oh is it uh, I thought he said Jim maybe he did say captain it's well anyway my, he said my notes is captain yeah but he's okay. dead he's yeah well speaking lastly of the neural neutralizer no neutralizer no no! No, don't let them! No! What's wrong, you, Captain? No! No! Don't let him stay! Don't let him stay! Don't! No! No! Don't hide from me! Please. This was probably my, my biggest issue with the whole thing is... Why why exactly is this mind-whammy brainwashing thing that Dr. Adams is doing considered wrong anyway? I mean, doesn't Doctor Phil do the same sort of thing, you know, to millions of gullible housewives every work uh, every weekday? No, no, no. I, mean... <laughs> I don't I mean, know. I guess we haven't asked him the right questions to watch him like sweat and strain to try to answer them. <laughs> no, I just mean as far as like sitting there with a with a complete just glaze, you know, on their face and just. You know, getting that little noise, you know, I, I, I see the same effect happening to, to people that, that watch that asshole. Yeah, his voice is sort of the same droning. <laughs> He's got that gentle southern accent, though. Oh, God. No! 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 So I think that about wraps it up for this one here. Simon! Simon! 
Yelder! Yelder! <laughs> Sounds like he's straining the shit when exactly. he's saying his own name. All right. Well, we both agree that this one's uh, this one's a classic. We both like this Earl one. So. Stool Hardner. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you got the you got the computer all fired up there? Yes, I do. All right. Let me just. I want to know what we're watching next time. Start. There it goes. You have to kick it. Number 13. Uh-oh. What? It's an evil number. Number 13. Number 13 is... Oh, no. Is it an the, evil episode? <laughs> the Conscience of the King. Is this the one with the troop of actors? Yes. And uh, what's his name? Koro... Uh, Ah, crap. I can't think of his name. Kothos or something like that. It's kind of... Well, I won't say, because, like, you know, every time I I'll tell you this. I didn't like this one as a kid, but I I know it's, like, a very Shakespeare... Like, reference to Shakespearean stuff. that's my problem. That's one of my major problems with it. Oh, Kodos. That's his name, Kodos. It's supposed to be sort of an analog, I think, to the whole thing with Hitler and all that, because Kirk was witness to this guy at some colony. It also follows one of Shakespeare's plays, too. It has some... The Tempest or something, yeah. Well, I think they're also putting on a Shakespeare play in it so it's all got all kinds of but it may be something we might appreciate more as adults as cultured adults you know what I'm saying who's a cultured adult me theoretically right we're I guess well, theoret- more yeah. cultured than we were when we were when we were 12 years old watching Star Trek on channel 11 <laughs> theoretically maybe, maybe slightly <laughs> yeah Don't, let's not stretch it you know I mean, when I think of Kodos, I think of, you know, instantly I think of, I think there's a, one of the aliens on The Simpsons is named Kodos, and I'll bet you they, there's Kang and Kodos. Yeah, those, yeah, they're, they're, those are Star Trek names. Definitely. All right, so the conscience of the king for next time. And uh, if we don't like it, we're just going to mock the hell out of it. I know there'll be some Star Trek <laughs> People who think Star Trek can do no wrong, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember being mockworthy. I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to see. We'll have to wait a month. Meanwhile, you should all be going out and watching the new Star Trek movie, which is out this week. Space. The final frontier. Please don't fuck up the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Because, J.J. Abrams, if you do, it will become our five-year mission to seek you out and to find new ways to put our boot where no man has gone before.
Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. The Two True Freaks now have a phone line where you can call and leave a completely inappropriate message. Maybe we'll even use it on the show. That number is 1-585-COP-LURE. That's 1-585-267-5873. If you enjoyed this show, why not review us in iTunes? And if you didn't enjoy this show, why not review us in iTunes? Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by DeManzo Core of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. You will forget all you have heard to remember any portion of it. Any word will cause you pain, terrible pain, growing more terrible as you fight to remember. Thank you.